in Irurri, Snowdonia, National Theatre Wales, along with Natural Resources Wales, hosted a two-week-long international artist residency in response to climate change, called Egin. As part of the proceedings, they curated four events, Skurshai Hinsouth, Climate Conversations. They brought the resident artists together with musicians and specially invited provocateurs to share local and global perspectives, along with anyone from the local community who fancied it. The climate conversations happened in an outdoor centre, in a carpeted room with a panelled ceiling and large windows that looked out onto a disused ski slope at the foot of Manadhoi Snowdonia's mountains. Before the events could be set up, we often had to wait for children who had been canoeing or orienteering to pick up their coats and bags and empty crisp packets. Each evening the room looked and felt completely different, put together by Lindsay Colburn, a facilitator and artist who hosted and produced the events collaboratively. Land, money, rebellion, hope. Podcasts like this often pose a question and then answer it. This is not what will happen here. Like the events they came from, this is about creating a space to share knowledge and thoughts and raise questions. And what happens next is up to all of us. Land, Tyr. We are about to start our first climate conversation with a focus on land. My name is Simon Coates and I'm Head of Creative Development at National Theatre Wales. Well, we have a fantastic musician called Eve Goodman. She will be starting at seven o'clock and we'll be playing some beautiful sounds to get everybody relaxed and in the mood to have a conversation. And they'll take seats around the tables, they'll introduce themselves, they'll meet people they don't know from down the road or the other side of the world. No, sorry. I'm yeah. Dylan, I'm part of Egan, uh, from Abrissa, living Cardiff. Shazad, I'm part of the Egan Artist Residency. I'm from Dhaka, Bangladesh. Honestly. And I'm Egg. And I live around in Nantes, and uh, I'm a writer. And in between acting and playwriting, I'm also a gardener. Like I do that as another job, and also garden and my own garden. They'll have a conversation about land and their relationship to land. And I was just thinking about how spectacular and special as well this very sort of ugly industrious landscape is with highlands and stuff like that so I'm not quite disappointed but yeah I don't think um, we talk about a relationship to land much in this country but it's something that I think will be increasingly talked about in the future I think it's really important to try and yeah to think about that now and to start to think about when we want to connect with land what does that mean as well some pieces of paper on the table so this is just so that we can capture any sort of great thoughts because what we're hoping this evening we're not in none of these talks we're trying to get agreement on anything the whole point of these evenings is to hear as many different perspectives as possible and to spend time to try and really understand where people are coming from especially if they're things that you don't agree with find her she 
Lindsay, a governor me Charlotte. Bought and compassion and a dama. Twin time level V, BN. Twin Andros Hapis, born also. Dilkin Vaur, the National Theatre of Wales, a governor me, Dorama. I'm going to speak the rest of my remarks in English, if that's okay. I grew up in Snowdonia, at uh, the foot of the Ogwen Valley. I had a really strong connection to the landscape. Born out of curiosity and fascination and, and wonder, and boredom, I think sometimes, just wandering around and picking stuff up and looking around and getting to know the creatures that I shared the valley with. Climbing to the summits and sitting down and, and looking at the views and feeling the winds and looking at the cloud formations and understanding the different types of rocks across the different parts of the valley. In particular, the crazy boulders, the, the erratic rocks that are laying around as though they've just been flung there by giants. And those, of course, are left by the ice ages that shaped the valley. And Franklin Dufferin is famous the world over for being an iconic glacial valley, a U valley. Now, I went away from growing up here to go to university to study zoology and ecology. I was inspired partly by watching things like documentaries of David Attenborough. I remember actually seeing a documentary where he comes to Ogwen Valley and he climbs up the hillside and he picks up a rock and he hits it with a hammer and lo and behold, <laughs> he finds a fossil fish, <laughs> a Devonian fish. And they are, the, the rocks from there are 300 million years old and you do find fish in them. And my brother and I, we thought, well, that's all you have to do. You go up the hill and you climb the hill and you find fish in all the rocks. And we went up there and we bashed all the rocks we could find and we didn't find a single fossil. <laughs> But anyway, I was hooked, I was hooked, and I went off to study this at university. And studying zoology, you understand the diversity that there is in the natural world, the biodiversity that there is out there, just endless forms of, of creation. And that has arrived over deep time, right? It's evolved over very slow millennia to what it is today. But learning about deep time, you also learn about extinction and the loss of species and the permanence of that extinction. We are now in the sixth mass extinction. There has been five periods in Earth's history in deep time going back hundreds of millions of years where the majority, over 50% of species, have gone extinct. We are now at the beginnings, as scientists and ecologists like myself will tell you, of the sixth mass extinction. Species going extinct at a rate of a thousand times the normal background rate. And that's accelerating. The UN just released a report recently that said one million species face extinction this century. And so my PhD, I, I studied a process of extinction. So I studied what are known as food webs or interaction networks. The, the interactions between all the species in an environment and the feeding interactions that go on between them. And I used to play games, in a sense. I used to play Jenga with these species. I used to play Kaplunk. And you'd pull out a species, and you'd see what would happen. How were the other species affected? Theoretical models, right? And you pulled out one, and you pulled out another, and you pulled out another, and you pulled out another, and suddenly, Kaplunk, the whole thing would fall down, right? And so we were trying to understand that if we take the ecosystems around us and we try and understand them through the loss of species, at what point do these species cascade into extinction? Can we predict which species are going to be the most important? Which ones are going to determine when other species are going to go extinct? And we couldn't. Because actually it depends on the history of the process of removal. It's contingent. And so if we lost species A, then species B, then species C, and then take away species D, kaplunk. Right? 
But if we lost species D first, and then species B, and then species C, then it would be Kaplunk, right? It would be different. And so we need to recognize that we do not have the ability, we will never have the ability to make these kind of predictions. It's inherent to the system, the uncertainty that there is in it. And that teaches us that we have to take caution when managing and interacting with these landscapes. I mean, it kind of reminds me of the sacredness of things and the sacredness of land. Uh, this friend of mine who is a farmer uh, back in Bangladesh, I mean, he lived city life, he went back to his village and started farming. And one day we were having this discussion and he told me about land and ownership of land. He was saying that actually you really don't own land in a way. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, exactly. it's, it's a signing of paper, but at the end of the day, you're yeah. just a caretaker of the land. Yeah. Yeah, All you sort of rent it for yeah. uses. For, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you, 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 I mean, you are taking it from uh, Mother Earth, and you're taking care of it, and then yeah. we'll pass it to somebody else, right. maybe your child, maybe you'll sell it to somebody, but it's not really yours. Yeah. All that you're supposed to do is take good care of it. Yeah. And I, I think uh, that was a wonderful way to look at, you know, ownership yeah, of land. Yeah, exactly. We're only temporary. Yeah, yeah. temporary. That system is being hugely affected by mankind's activities right now, to the point that we're now talking about it as a new state of the Earth system, that we're looking at the Anthropocene, the, the idea that this has now changed so much from the natural state that we were in to today's functioning of the Earth system is just there's been a rupture in that we've doubled the amount of nitrogen that's being fixed every year. We're eroding twice as much rock as all the world's rivers combined through our mining and uh, excavation. You know, we've increased the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere by 40%. The oceans are 30% more acidic than they used to be. All of that within just the last 150 years. And that's fundamentally changing the Earth system. And then that has repercussions, obviously, for us and, and sustainable development and the livelihoods of people around the planet, but also all the special organisms that are adapted to the previous conditions and haven't had time to readjust and evolve to the new ones. And so coming around full circle, I guess that's, again, what's led me to become this, this campaigner rather than the scientist, which is the trajectory I probably would have preferred to be on in some ways. Because ultimately, I'd say the survival of, of our civilization, but also all of these other organisms that, that I care about, is at stake. And, and if we don't figure this out really quickly, we're, we're in a mess. I mean, for me, it's a, it's a landscape shaped by the common agriculture policy. You know, and um, if you come from construction, the only industrial material that we can use at scale and increase the use of without destroying the planet is timber. And therefore, to kind of ignore our need for the resource, it's a bit like ignoring our need for efficient food production. Um, and the interesting thing is, though, it doesn't. I, I don't you believe really you have need to take conifers, like mass conifers, because like construction conifers is great, but nothing is from a sort of wildlife perspective or a landscape perspective. It's horrendous. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's horrendous. I did a project I say it's not looking in Canada at the effect that wildfires were having on the thawing of the permafrost. Um, this is an uncertainty in our models. Yeah, we don't yeah. understand properly yeah, how changes in the fire regimes in the boreal forest is affecting the thawing of permanently frozen soils. And that's important because those soils contain a lot of carbon, and when they thaw, some of that carbon can get released as greenhouse gases, and those greenhouse gases can accelerate climate change. So we're trying to narrow down that uncertainty in our models to say, what is the consequence of increasing fire frequency in those systems, in those ecosystems?
those fires are a natural part of those systems, right? They normally would have happened on a return interval of about 150 years. You'd have had a fire in any given location roughly on that time frame. It's now almost doubled so that they're happening roughly every 80 years and the fires are much more intense and much more widespread. So they, they're much bigger fires. And they're burning into not just the trees and all the foliage, but also the layers of moss which insulate the soil and all the seed bank under it. And so they're completely reforming those ecosystems in the Arctic now. And as they, they do that, you get burn scars and they're blackened soils and those black soils absorb more sunlight and they cause more of the ice to melt beneath. Those then cause melt ponds, which release methane and other greenhouse gases. So it's a feedback. And one of the things that's so bizarre when you're walking up through those landscapes in the Arctic is that the trees which had been growing in these forests for generations are now tilting over because the soil underneath them is melting and they can't stay upright. And so you get this effect known as drunken forests. My name is Suzanne Sukjit Kordaliwal, and my middle name means peaceful warrior. So I just wanted to bring my language and my ancestors to this place. Um, when we were speaking actually at the table, I realised I'm totally lost in terms of place. I'm a Brummie, as you can hear, who lived in Oxford and London, I've worked in Canada and Nigeria, and I'm currently in Amsterdam because of Brexit. So I've been really grateful actually to be here and to spend some time in the lands. Aaron mentioned a little bit about what is happening in Canada and the tar sands and so I want to just sort of pull out a little bit and if we think about the globe and, and Mother Earth as a whole, we know that there are tipping points, specific points that lead to the destabilization of the climate. And many of us know about the Amazon, but in the north, the boreal forest is just as vital a carbon sink to sustaining the temperature and the ecosystem. And so the total land area of the tar sands is the, if it goes ahead as planned, it's the size of England and Wales. And so what they're mining for here is unconventional oil. So as many of you know, we've actually hit the peak of conventional oil, the slippy stuff that just squirts out. This is bitumen. It's basically like tarmac. What the oil industry does is they remove the forest, which they call overburden, which we would call life. And they remove that and you have to process that bitumen with natural gas. So it's like using caviar to make spam. And you also have to use fresh water as well. So this is a lot of the oil that is now being set to go to the US. And many of you must have heard about the Standing Rock movement that was happening. And some of that oil was actually coming through um, from the tar sands, the Keystone XL pipeline, eventually being refined in Venezuela. Some of it has been coming to Wales even. There was plans to refine bitumen in, in Wales as well. And then the plan is to take it north once the Arctic melts to China and Russia. Often the Canadian government will say that this is ethical oil and this is part of the PR scheme that Canada has. And when I lived there, actually people hadn't heard about it because this is happening on the territory of indigenous communities. So basically the government will say there's no one there, it's nothing, there's, it's not inhabited. And so a lot of Canadians didn't actually know about this and that was happening until a few years ago. And I just want to bring another word into the room as well, which is ecocide. 
When a territory is so destroyed, there can no longer be peaceful activity on there. It's, it's irreversible damage. So this will take, like this will never heal. This, this land is completely devastated. And when you walk through there, I've actually walked through there with the communities on a healing walk, there are cannons that fire every few seconds. And that is their strategy for keeping wildlife off there. So there are hundreds of thousands of birds, bears, loads of animals that have died on this territory. So it's literally a war on the land. And I think that's very important for when we're talking about timescales. We're talking about this future thing that might happen. In reality, depending on your race and where you actually land, we're already living through this climate catastrophe. And the UN has acknowledged that actually 80% of the biodiversity on the earth that is left to be protected is somehow under indigenous custodianship or title or contested lands. So if we're thinking about being strategic, we really need to understand that the centering of indigenous rights, of indigenous struggles, is really, really important in how we move forward on this. But it's not just on the front lines in the Arctic that we're seeing these changes, is it? We're also seeing them here, in Snowdonia. 2015, I was back visiting my parents, and capital Currig, where we are now, received a year of rain in just one month, in December. We had over a metre of rain. Now, these floods were so severe that they cut off not only the A5, but the A55. And so the whole of northwest Wales, including Anglesey and the ferry crossing, were inaccessible. The scientists at the Met Office will tell us that that's three times at least more likely to have happened because of climate change. And that is just the beginning of the changes that we're going to see. There's a town along the coast near Pocheli, Fairbourne, which has been told that within 25 years it's going to have to be destroyed because the sea level rise is happening at such a rate that they can no longer afford to pay for the flood defences of that village. So that's a whole community which has been told that they are going to have to uproot themselves without any compensation and find somewhere else to live. A lot of the community are in complete denial and upset about this, but it's happening. And it's going to happen in a lot more places, both around the UK, but also obviously around the world. Whole islands, whole nations, including the deltas of Bangladesh, deltas of Cairo, deltas of the Mekong Delta. And again, this is just the beginning of what we're going to see if we carry on on our current trajectory. So there is no future in which isn't going to see dramatic change. And I'd really encourage you to read the Ogoni Bill of Rights because it's one of those forefront documents that shows how indigenous rights, how land rights are connected to environmental rights. And so that's like a bedrock of this movement that we need to understand that we are working from. When we're thinking about climate change, that we really start decolonizing the work because we can't actually solve it with the same brain that created it. That's the capitalist, white supremacist, patriarchal mind. So we need to make sure that those queer voices, that the POC voices who are already living through this, um, that we're leading and, yeah, and that we survive the future, definitely. My, my propagation to you right now, I guess, to conclude, is that I'm sitting here in, in suspense, <laughs> uh, a sense of terror, perhaps, that we're in this huge moment of opportunity, and yet we might squander this. We might not all stand up when it matters most to make the change that we can and need to make. So I have an invitation, I guess, to you all, and that is to step up at this time be part of this moment and use all the skills and the background and, and, and your unique experiences to make your contribution to this moment. And yeah, 
don't sit this one out. So thank you very much. from um, Eve Goodman again and um, so before that uh, any final thoughts and I personally I'd really appreciate anything upbeat that um, <laughs> any 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 um, upbeat thoughts yeah I've discovered something about Hirayat and I've just I've just actually messaged friends at home to ask whether what I think is true is true but it's the same word in Bengali it means exactly the same thing did you hear, could you hear that? Yeah. So in Bengali, exactly the same I don't word. know if it's a borrowing from Welsh and some... Exactly the same word, here right, means exactly the same thing. My name's Lisa, Lisa Hudson, and I live in Bethesda, so 15 miles away from here. I'm slightly overwhelmed by it all. I, have, I haven't been actively involved in climate change resistance or activism in any way and apart from sort of the usual news reports and write-on conversations that you sort of stand on the edges of it's not really been in the forefront of my mind so it's I'm really overwhelmed by what they both of the speakers were talking about the phrase using caviar to make spam which is just lodged in my brain tonight's first time I've even heard of Tarzans and yet that's monstrous and massive and is wiping out wildlife people everything and we didn't even know it existed. I didn't even know it existed. It's got my mind working thinking okay there's got to be a way of proper meaningful resistance. Can I, I, I live in Bethesda there's about oh, 5,000 people there. Can I make the whole town get on board and all stop or go on strike or we've got the local energy soon we've got a hydro scheme we could you know can the whole town sign up for it? Can we all stop playing this game? Could, could we all stop paying our taxes? Fallen trees are hard to move Lots of branches and lots to lose I need you to help me now Cut the bullshit and chop the bough Take this wood home for your fire Say a prayer cause she didn't grow higher We just lost a habitat clicks his fingers and just like that is what we do that is what we do thank you to our speakers Aaron Thierry and Suzanne Daliwal for their provocations and Eve Goodman for her music you also heard contributions from Simon Coates Shazad Chowdhury and Lisa Hudson as well as conversations from around the tables. A huge thank you to all the people who took part in Egin, the Elchenbaur. These podcasts were recorded and edited by me, Lisa Haleth-Jones. Egin was produced by National Theatre Wales in partnership with Natural Resources Wales, with support from the National Trust, Snowdonia National Park Authority and the British Council. Set you free, close your eyes, and you will see what we can do. See.